0: Welcome to Brain Chat. I'm Dr. Mitzi Joy Williams, your board-certified neurologist and MS specialist, and my mission is to engage, educate, and empower those affected by MS to become an active part of their healthcare team. Here on Brain Chat, we'll be discussing all things MS, health and wellness, advocacy, and we'll even throw a little bit of music and music therapy in there as well. Thank you so much for joining us, and stay tuned for the next episode. Happy Monday, friends, and welcome to Brain Chat. I'm Dr. Mitzi, your board-certified neurologist and MS specialist, and I am so, so excited um, about the show that we have tonight. And I know I say that every time, but I mean it, y'all. I'm really excited. Um, We want to first thank our sponsors, Biogen, IDEC, and the National MS Society um, for supporting our work as well as the Joy Life Foundation. All right, so... I am going to introduce our very esteemed guests. All right, so first I have Dr. Miravalle, who is an Associate Professor of Clinical Neurology at the University of Colorado. He provides patient care at Advanced Advanced Neurology of Colorado. He's a board-certified neurologist with subspecialty training in multiple sclerosis. He received his medical degree in Argentina, completed neurology residency at Loyola University in Chicago, my hometown, Chi-town, where he served as Chief Resident of Education. And then he did his Neuroimmunology Fellowship at Harvard in Boston and Fellowship in Medical Education at University of Rochester in New York. He has received numerous awards, including the American Neurological Association Medical Education Fellowship Award, the Academy of Neurology Research and Education Award, and American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology Faculty Education Innovation Award. Say that three times fast. He has published numerous articles and I get to work with with him in the health equity space. And he is also a national and... International speaker, um, and he works as a consultant with multiple um, scientific organizations. We also have Dr. Leora Freeman, who is assistant professor of neurology and diagnostic medicine at Dell Medical School, the, te- the University of Texas at Austin. She's also a neurologist um, who has uh, specialized in multiple sclerosis. She earned her medical and doctorate degrees in Paris, in France, um, and she completed um, her uh, residency in neurology and MS Fellowship in Paris, and followed by her postdoctoral research fellowship at the University of Texas um, at Houston. She currently serves as the Director of Multiple Sclerosis Imaging and Outcomes Research, and she is the Director of the MS and Neuroimmunology Fellowship Program at Dell Medical School. Welcome, Dr. Miravale and Dr. Freeman.
1: Thank you, Mitzi.
2: Thank you, Mitzi, for the introduction. So good to see you.
0: Absolutely. So listen, you know, this is one of my favorite topics, so I cannot wait to get into it. All right. But before I want you to each we'll start with Dr. Miravale. Tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of how you got involved in MS.
1: Sure. Yeah. Thank you for the opportunity. It's great being here. And so, as you mentioned, I'm from Argentina. So I grew up in South America and then I came to the U.S., to Chicago to do my training. And and interestingly, I I never thought of this as an area of interest up until I came to the U.S., but I I very quickly learned that the the healthcare systems are very different. And, you know, Mm -hmm. doing a med school in Argentina, you are constantly influenced by the social determinants of health, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. it's socialized medicine and social medicine is part of our training and Mm -hmm. and a very important part of the care. And, but interestingly, there are differences, right? So things like, for example, access to healthcare is not a, mm. big, a big issue in Argentina because it's socialized medicine. Whereas mm-hmm. when I came to the US, I learned that access to healthcare is heavily influenced by uh, things like socioeconomical status or where mm-hmm. you live, neighborhoods you belong to, race. Mm-hmm. And, and all of those things became an area of curiosity and, and, and it interests me to try to not only understand that, but can we do something to improve that?
0: Mm, I love it. I love it. And just for clarification for the audience, what do you mean by socialized medicine?
1: Yeah, so uh, healthcare systems in in Argentina and other parts of the world actually are uh, pretty much depending on many factors. But there is a state uh, sponsors uh, a healthcare system that most people will have access to. Um, mm-hmm. So even if you don't have a job, even if you have a private insurance, you still have access to hospitals, so you still have access to uh, resources. Of course, that brings a different problem, which is resource allocation, right? Because resources right. are limited. So not right. everyone will have the same access to the same resources and is pretty much prioritized based on medical decisions. Uh, mm-hmm. but, but the access itself to the basics of, of, of health are guaranteed just by being a citizen of that country.
0: Yeah, so it reminds me, I did a... Um, yeah. Study abroad program when I was in college, it was a comparative healthcare systems program, and so we went to um, London and we spent some time in the system at the NHS, the National Health Service. And so, as long as you had an address, you had a doctor, um, and you could access healthcare. So again, it was very different, you know, than here in the U.S. And people had private insurance, and of course, if you had money, you could get more access. But right. you know, everybody had at least basic access to some type of, you know, general practitioner as well as hospital services. So, all right, thank you. For for explaining that. All right, Dr. Freeman, tell us about it. How did you get involved in MS?
2: In MS. So I started in med school and it makes gonna make me sound really old, but I started medical school about 25 years ago and I can still mm-hmm. remember at first I got in, I wanted to be a pediatrician. Uh, I loved it.
0: To, me too, um, me too. I, I think that was in I vogue am. back then. That was that I mean, was yeah, a I thing.
2: kind of grew out of that uh, after some time I you know my first experience in pediatrics was in the NICU and that was maybe not the best introduction. And, uh, and uh, so anyway, so I, my first encounter with MS, I remember vividly, and you know, I I, I was trained also in the country with socialized medicine. Um, it was a 400 plus year, year old institution. And we had these, you know, rooms at the time, it was four patients per room. And I can remember the first mm-hmm. time I was a second year medical student and, and uh, we were rounding one Saturday morning and, and we had a young man with MS who had his first attack. And, um, and lost, um, you know, motor, you know, control over his you know, lower extremities, and and uh, and we were here. My attending, you know, was to explain to him that his images had come back, and he was indeed diagnosed with MS. And I, I remember her sitting down next to him, holding his hand, talking with him. And it's truly really the power of this interaction, of really sharing the moment with our patients, that's what I remember that brought me to MS. I had this fantastic mentor in Paris and incredible mentor in Houston as well. And and I think that, you know, I wanted to be able to share in, you know, this life journey with my patients. And I think that's something Mm -hmm. very special that we get to do with uh, as MS specialists.
0: Absolutely. We're a part of the family, right? So I know the kids, the grandkids, <laughs> the dogs, the cats, <laughs> everybody, because we really do. Yeah, and then you
2: kids get, know your own kids too. I mean, that's they the do, view. they I do. Mean, They're you know, like, oh my God. In, and they yeah, just so want to know, like, how are your kids doing? And it's absolutely. just, it's, it's pure joy. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Absolutely. So both of you have a really great passion, not only for caring um, for people living with MS, but um, working on projects focused on health equity, which is why I invited you both to be on this show. And, you know, that is a passion um, that is very near and dear to me, you know, having worked in many communities that are underserved, right, and underrepresented. And so what does health equity mean to you?
2: Well, for me, it truly really means that we have a, we're able to have all people achieve their highest health potential. That is a definition of health equity, really, to me. But if you go a little bit deeper, the the, the core, you know, of health equity is that we value everybody's health and everybody's dignity equally. So for me, it's really going to that level of equal dignity, equal value of all people. And how does that apply to their health, to their access to healthcare uh, is, is really critical. It also means that for us as physicians or for institutions or governments, it means that we have to Continue to remove barriers to care so that we can eliminate the health or healthcare disparities that exist uh, out there. Um, you know, and when we talk about health equity. You know, we really need to take a broad focus. We we see disparities in care uh, all around us. As you know, as an MS specialist, I see that all around. It's it's you know different population. We we have people of different races experiencing different outcomes. People across the age spectrum, older adults that may uh, be. Uh, not as well served by our healthcare system. So we really mm-hmm. have to look at it from a multi, multi-pronged multi perspective, but truly really at its core, I think it, it speaks to our heart because it's it's the value of the human person and how we value each person um, equally. Absolutely, yeah.
1: I love it. What are your thoughts? Yeah, and I, just, I completely agree. And I think in a sense, going back to the basic principles, I mean, if you mm-hmm. even look at it, the term health equity, so health is a basic human, right? Every human should have access to health, right? I mean, that's Mm -hmm. something that healthcare providers, we need to remind ourselves. And equity is different to equality, right? I mean, equity means not only we allocate resources to people in in a fair way, But actually, we meet individuals where they need us, where they are. And some individuals are more vulnerable at risk populations, more disadvantaged populations, and they will need different resources. They will need different attention to gaps that perhaps other social groups don't have. So equity doesn't necessarily mean uh, giving the same resources to everyone, uh, but uh, meeting people where they are and understanding their needs, being mindful of their individual but also Mm -hmm. social needs, and being mm-hmm. able to serve them in the best possible way so they can achieve maximal health.
0: Absolutely. So you know, you guys are speaking my language, right? So many um, you know, nuggets in, in the things that you said. And I think for me, on a very basic level, You know, since transitioning to my own practice, I certainly have a large population of people from minoritized, you know, um, racial and ethnic groups in my practice. And I think for me, health equity has really kind of boiled down in many instances to being believed. Right. Um, I think one of the biggest gaps that I see in um, practice is that people have symptoms. They go to the doctor and they're not believed. Right. For whatever reason, whether it's a woman who is thought to be, you know, have anxiety or, you know, whether it is a person of color. Um, whoever it is, right? People are not believed because maybe they don't fit in that certain box that we think of when we think of that condition, whether it's multiple sclerosis or some other neurologic condition. You know, Many of us are conditioned to kind of have a profile in mind, right? We have a face. We have a certain type of symptoms that we think of when we think of certain diseases. And I think that when people don't fit that um, box, sometimes they're just not believed and that leads to a lot of inequities. So kind of in that vein, when we think about underrepresented populations, oftentimes the first thing that comes to people's minds are, you know, people um, who are part of minoritized groups, racially ethnic groups, right? But there are multiple underserved populations, particularly the MS space. So I kind of want to take a moment to to talk about those and kind of some of the needs that we have. So for instance, I think about men, right? So MS is one of the very few groups where men are the minority, right? So, so, you know, kind of what are the thoughts and needs for men with MS? What about Um, you know, uh, pregnant women, right? Many of our patients are childbearing age and we're just now getting research about understanding how to treat people during pregnancy and family planning. Um, What about um, people over the age of 55? Most of our clinical trials um, stop at age 55. Now some go up to 65 and I'm very clear that 55 and 65 are not old. Um, But, you know, just for the record, I gotta say that's not old. Um, But, you know, we don't have a lot of research for those pediatric populations. Populations, right, as well as those who are of racial and ethnic minority groups. So let's talk about some of the needs, you know, in some of these groups. And you could just pick one or two and kind of, kind of say where are the gaps and and how do we, um, you know, start to begin to address those.
2: Yeah, I mean, so I I have had a particular interest, for instance, in in you know the the older or aging population, and mm-hmm. and you know I think that all what we know about MS and what we've learned, we've learned from younger groups, people who experience maybe relapses, a lot of um, disease activity, new lesions, new, you know, and this has really driven the development of medication towards Mm -hmm. this inflammatory process that's very, you know, dominant in the earlier stages of the disease. But as people get older, you know, people uh, start experiencing kind of progressive symptoms Sometimes their MRI stays stable and they experience kind of that dissonance that you talk about. They not believe or they may not be heard because doctors may tell them, well, your MRI is stable, so you're doing great. And they're like, mm-hmm. well, I am absolutely not doing great. And I don't know. Right. Is it MS? Is it age? Uh, Is it something else? And I think there's a huge gap here in, you know, kind of how we understand MS through the lens of younger uh, populations and how we can, you know, do better in caring and first believing, kind of bringing... You know, the invis- making the invisible visible instead of saying, mm-hmm. well, I see nothing on your MRI. That means you're doing well. No, we have to make the invisible visible so that these patients can be seen, these patients can be heard, and we can develop better plan of care for them. So for me, for instance, that has been, you know, a, a group that we don't talk about as much, but I think it's, right. it's very important because when you look at the prevalence of MS in the U.S., The groups with the largest prevalence are groups, you know, 55 to 64 and 64 to 70, 65 to 74, you know, from a recent study from the National MS Society. So these are groups where we have lots of patients, poor understanding of their disease and what happens with them, poor understanding of their outcome, but more specifically, a very poor understanding about how to treat them and how to improve their care. So I think we need to do a little bit better for this population.
0: I agree. We need to do a lot better, Um, you know, and we think about immunosenescence, right? So the immune system aging like the rest of our body ages. And so how do we balance the risks versus the benefits of medications or develop new treatment pathways to maybe address some of these issues? So definitely a population that's very underserved in the MS um, community. And we need a lot of work to make sure that we're addressing because, you know, we've got better medications. So people are living longer, (laughs) you know, but we have to know how to treat people now that they are living longer, you know, very productive lives with their MS. Uh, what about you,
1: Dr. Miravalli? Yeah, no, I agree. And I think that in terms of understanding, uh, I, I will say that we are heavily biased to see MS through the lens of what we know, which is individuals that were enrolled in clinical trials or large studies. Mm-hmm. And for the most part, those are Caucasian females, right, in the age mm-hmm. of 18 55. Uh, so anything that does not fall into the typical course or the expected course that we learn through studies, we might either not even believe, as you were mentioned, Dr. Williams, or, mm-hmm. or we, we don't even know what to do with that because we have little, if any, knowledge. That's why it's so important to, to understand the, 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 the need to uh, do research and conduct research that includes mm-hmm. populations different to white Caucasian females, right? So research in Black, research in Latinx populations, in elderly, in in pediatric multiple sclerosis. So we can expand our understanding of the disease itself, the response to therapies, so we can better serve the communities. But I also looked at underserved populations or vulnerable populations or disadvantaged populations from a Mm -hmm. resource allocation standpoint. So those are Mm -hmm. social groups that actually have it traditionally being a, at a disadvantage or unfair uh, resource allocation when it comes to health, access to healthcare, access to medications, access to education. And, and those are populations that could be classified based on race, uh, mm-hmm. We can classify populations based on ethnicity, but also mm-hmm. based on age, based on gender, based on, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, sex identity, right? I mean, there is little if any information that we know of how to better serve individuals from the LGBTQ plus community. Absolutely. So those are important groups uh, that we need to not only better serve in the community, but actually better understand through research. Absolutely. I think
2: it's important to also remind everyone that, our patients don't fit just in one box. You're not just right. an older adult with MS. You're not just black. You're not just, you know, people, we are a lot of beautiful things. And, and sometimes we check boxes. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it's really important to understand people through the lens of that complexity of who each person is. And uh, so I, I think it's really important to to remind people of this. Is it's, it's really, we're all you know, a, a lot of things together and, and very unique at the same time. Um, so I, I wanted to add from my experience in Texas, because just like Augusto, I, I come from a country where uh, we had a socialized healthcare system, uh, very different, you know, I got practice in, in France before I moved to the States and, you know, that was, a, that was the biggest cultural shock for me. Was I was
0: about I, to say, I know that was culture shock.
2: <laughs> that was wow. And um you know, something that's been very uh, interesting here in Texas especially um, is, you know, we have this huge state. Uh, it's, it's you know, 25% larger than France, you know, where I come from. And, mm-hmm. and uh, when you look at different maps that are drawn out from, you know, our census data and all this, about half the state is medically underserved, uh, mm-hmm. mainly rural areas. So we have really this juxtaposition of, urban area and uh, rural area. And that adds a lot of complexity. We have only uh, eight national MS society accredited, uh, you know, comprehensive care center in the state of Texas. Um, We have only five academic, five of those are academic centers. So we're really functioning from a low resource standpoint. And so when you look at people who live, you know, uh, deep in rural areas, when they have to travel, when they, you know, to get care, when even the care that they can get is not, you know, the traditional academic comprehensive, you know, care um, that other people could have access to. You know, this this creates a lot of difficulty for people to just even get to where they need to be to receive MS care. Um, So that has a lot of challenge related to to geography. But what's also very, you know, what was very surprising and even shocking to me when I first moved to the States that you really don't have to go far. To see poverty, to see right. underserved patients, you know, just just ten minutes east of where I'm sitting right now, um, you know, in East Austin, we have entire communities that are, you know, have extremely poor access to not just healthcare but healthy foods, uh, education, you know, and mm-hmm. and uh, you know, so there's so many facets uh, to mm-hmm. to this uh, complexity of, of of health equity. Sometimes it's not just accessing an MS drug that's a problem. You know, for some of my patients is being able to live in in a home that's, you know, safe, uh, in a neighborhood where they can walk around. Um, That's part of of the challenges of their health. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, so we have to really look at it from a very multi-angle perspective.
0: So it's very complex, right? So, you know, um, care is not just about... um, you being able to physically access you know, a certain clinic, right? So that's an important piece of it, but it's also about being able to do things at home, like take care of yourself, eat healthy diet, um, exercise in a safe environment to be able to keep up with your medications, to be able to access them, pay for them, etc. So it's a very complex issue, right? And I think, um, you know, there are many different ways that we can approach trying to, you know, deal or improve health inequities. Um, one that I try to do is really focus on empowering people, right? Um, so I try to empower patients. But another piece I think is really important is that we do need to work on educating our colleagues about why these issues are important, right? So we are kind of entrenched in the work. But certainly, if someone is maybe in the community and seeing 30 or 40 people a day, they may not be as focused on this. So how do we begin to um, make people aware Um Obviously, we know that inequities exist, but particularly for multiple sclerosis, you know, um, how do we begin to make people aware that this work is important and that this work does really impact, you know, downstream effects of what we're seeing in the clinic and why we're seeing some of the outcomes that we see in certain populations?
1: I think that comes down to research and data, right? I mean, I think we have to, in order to fix a problem, you first need to understand it. You need to understand right. what the problem is, recognize it, right? Uh, and and I think when you look at uh, healthcare disparities, there is a lot of denial and, and mm-hmm. misconceptions that goes there. So I always like to kind of, Um, organize myself in different buckets, right? And and I always look, well, there's an intrapersonal component. You need to make a self-assessment and understand what your biases are, what your gaps are, understand how you practice medicine and what can you do to improve what you do. There is an interpersonal approach, which is what we're doing now. Talk to your colleagues, educate yourself, create coalitions, create groups, uh, do research together so we can actually educate ourselves and learn from each other on how to better tackle this very complex process. But there is also institutional and systemic level approaches that has to Mm -hmm. happen. And that's when you're getting more into this dark, obscure space of understanding how things like Structural racism plays a role, Mm -hmm. right? And then let's be honest about it. That's ultimately at the core, at the center of inequities is if if you don't address racism, you're not going to fix the problem, right? So I think there's so many different levels uh, that we need to be mindful of. But certainly uh, that should not discourage us from doing things. I mean, there is a lot we can do. And as Dr. Freeman mentioned, at the end of the day, it's just sitting down with your patient And understanding the patient, being open, being tolerant, being respectful, and and trying to, you know, help in any way you could uh, to solve the immediate moment that the patient has in front of you. Absolutely.
2: I feel that sometimes people don't want to see the problem because they don't want to be confronted with the fact that they have to be a part of the solution. And I think that part of our work is to you know, make people realize that we're all in this together, we have, Mm -hmm. you know, disparities in health and healthcare access, they're all around us, and, Mm -hmm. and, you know, something that I like doing is, you know, I like telling my patients stories, I like sharing the stories that, you know, I think it's very powerful, because, you know, the healthcare system in general can dehumanize individuals, and by telling the story first, we rehumanize our healthcare system. And so mm-hmm. I think this that is really the power that we have as neurologists is that you know every day every day we walk in a room we have the privilege to share into somebody's life story. Absolutely. And and being able to to bring this story to the forefront of our conversations with our colleagues really emphasizes the hum- humanity of what we do. For me it's not about, you know, you know, politics and games. It's really about the human person. And so I bring this with me first. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's, and I know you you both do. I know you both very well to know that that's what you carry with you. When you say people are not seen, people are not heard and you are a voice, you know? Yeah. So um, I think that's really the first step to bringing people to the table. If we can all agree that, individuals in, you know, living those stories are living something that we would not want to live ourselves, that, yeah. that this, those are difficult stories that we're carrying with us, that we're bringing to the table, stories of, you know, difficult stories of barriers and gaps in care and all of this, also beautiful story in their own way, because often we see a lot of resilience and, mm-hmm. and, and uh, a lot of beautiful things that accompany this, but really We are bringing those stories to the table so that people Mm -hmm. can sit in and and really realize that we all have a role to play. And maybe my role is to bring, you know, to work on the research. Maybe somebody's role like you, um, Mitzi, is to really empower, educate. uh, and that's critical. We all have a role to play. It may be different um, from the person sitting next to us, but when we sit yeah. all together, when right. we dare sitting at the table, then right. uh, we can have a more complete picture and and a better plan.
0: Right. And I think you know, talking about kind of being that voice and highlighting that voice um, is one of the reasons that I'm very passionate about empowering those who are affected by MS to also share their stories, right? So there's one thing for me to talk about the 10 or 20 people that I've seen who may have had these experiences, but to hear it from that person living, you know, with the condition, I think is also an important piece that often has been missing um, for many of our healthcare conversations, right? We talk about the individuals or patients, but we don't always talk with them in more scientific or broader settings. And so I think that's something that's extremely important. And I think you know, from a health equity standpoint in terms of empowering people, you know, my message to them is, you know, keep going. If you're not getting what you need, don't quit, right? Um, and I try to use examples like, okay, if I got a hairstyle and it was terrible, which actually happened to me not too long ago, if I got a hairstyle and it was terrible, it doesn't mean that I will never get my hair done again, right? I probably will not go back to that person that did a bad job on my hair and I would do some research Research, right. I would ask some friends. I go on the Internet, you know, and so we put a lot of effort into creating teams. Right. All of us have different teams in our lives, whether it is our you know, significant others, whether it's a babysitter, whether it's a barber, whether it's, you know, for women, we have a lot more team members of Augusto, like people that do nails, people that do hair. I mean, we got a lot of teams. Right. But so all of us have teams, right? And so just like we put a lot of effort into those teams and doing research before we make big decisions, I think it's important to get the message across, you know, um, for people living with a chronic condition like MS, that you can also do that same research, right? So if you get a doctor that's not providing what you need or not, you don't feel listened to or heard, it's okay to get another opinion. You know what I mean? It's okay to keep going until you get what you need. And so I think that that um, is another piece. And it's unfortunate that we have to put that much um, responsibility on people because they may not be receiving culturally competent care. But I think that's the other piece that also will help um, drive the system to change. So you know, in thinking about, you know, we talked about underserved communities, um, obviously our our aging population, LGBTQ plus populations, pediatric populations, there are many areas where there are gaps, where we need more research and information. But let's park a little bit and talk about... Um, our our minoritized populations, racial and ethnic groups, right? Because this is an area where there's been a lot of attention to research in the MS space, particularly over the past decade, because MS is occurring a lot more in these populations than we previously thought, right? So if you look back in the 70s, it was thought that black people got MS half as commonly as white people, but now we know it may be um, up to 50% higher in some groups, that the incidence may be higher. um, And even in other groups, Where we didn't traditionally know a lot about MS, we're learning more about MS in Native American, um, Asian Pacific Islander populations, Hispanic and Latino communities. So why is studying um, these populations, right? So we obviously want to study many populations, but why is studying these populations important um, to helping to better understand MS in general?
2: So I can speak a little bit to that. So uh, first, you know, if we kind of take a step back and we look, so my my team, uh, thanks to an amazing research coordinator assistant who worked with me for a couple of years, her name is Helena Onora, and I'm sure you're going to hear a lot about her once she graduates medical school. Uh, And she, so when she started working with me, she started reading the uh, clinical trial papers um, for MS. And herself, an African-American woman, she noticed that, You know, there were not a lot of blacks in those studies, so she decided Mm -hmm. to uh, study this more with more scrutiny, and we ended up publishing this big systematic review of all MS phase three trials, uh, which are the large trials. You know, it was a good paper. I agree. And uh, and so we what we found was two things that were important. Is one, we found that um, non-white participants were underreported in MS studies. So about Only one-third of study fully reported the the race, different race categories for the participants of the trials. Uh, And then we found that when race was reported, uh, we found that non-white participants were very significantly underrepresented uh, in those trials. And for me, that's really important for two reasons. Number one is I'm a researcher, and I think that the objective of clinical research is to help me as a physician and my patients make decisions. So we need generalizable right. knowledge to be able to, to make the best decisions. When we do not have a diverse population, um, and, you know, yes, race and ethnicity, uh, race especially is, is more of a social construct. It's not a biological concept, but by, you know, not enrolling diverse populations, we're not capturing the wide range of relevant health or life experiences uh, that can impact clinical outcomes or that can even impact response to treatments. So for me, the first of all is trying to get generalizable knowledge out of our clinical studies. Uh, The second piece is, and I think we've seen this in in multiple sclerosis. We've seen 25 years of incredible development, drug development. We've seen medications that have become more and more effective. And when I think about concepts of clinical research, I also think about the concept of distributive justice, which Mm. is an important concept that, you know, say that all the benefits and risks of clinical research need to be equally distributed across society. I mean, in light of Previous wrongdoings, we tend to think, you know, about this in protecting people from risks of research, which is very important. But as we've seen with MS, we've had, you know, different therapeutics with greater efficacy come out um, successively. And it is important that our clinical trials are more inclusive of patients from minoritized communities so that they can also, at the clinical trial level, benefit from these interventions. Uh, So that's the other piece of the puzzle here, is that Mm -hmm. we want all communities to be able to benefit from interventions that uh, that, uh, are available only in clinical trials and may be more beneficial than what's currently approved.
0: Mm -hmm. I love it. You know, so essentially we want the research that we do to reflect the populations of people who will actually receive these therapies, right? So it's important Um, that we're not, let's say, experimenting after (laughs) something has come out, right? Um, So it's important that we learn those things in a controlled setting um, so that we can then take that knowledge and apply it to the real world. And then also when talking about distributive justice, you know, there are many benefits to clinical research and people should have that option, right? So it's not for everybody, um, you know, but people should have that option and they should be asked. You know, there are multiple studies. Um, There was a PCORI project that we did with the MS Research, um, Minority Research Partnership Engagement Network. It's a really long uh, term. But we did some studies looking at people's receptiveness to research, and most people were very interested, um, but they weren't asked, and they didn't know where to find out about studies. Um, What are your thoughts, uh, Augusto?
1: Yeah, no, I I agree. and I think there is is need to even... um, broaden the concept of race uh, from a medical research standpoint, right? I mean, I Mm -hmm. think we are all cognizant on the fact, as Dr. Freeman mentioned, race, it is a social construct and Mm -hmm. should not be used as an individual proxy of things like, you know, genetic background, right? I mean, we understand that that is there. However, uh, we still need to uh, conduct clinical research that reflects the populations that we Mm -hmm. serve. And uh, they're heavily biased towards whites. And as we were mentioning before, so we we need to practice medicine. We need to understand how to do that. And research is one of the strongest tools we have um, to try to get there. So that that argument should not be used to um, eliminate the possibility of doing race-based research.
0: Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we have a lot to learn, Um, you know, so what projects you know so kind of switching gears you guys the time went by really fast so we're kind of coming along to the end of our episode and our time together but i'd like to know what projects are you all excited about um in the health equity space in multiple sclerosis
2: so for me I think or projects
0: that you're excited about in general of educating for people living with ms
2: so for me, I think that's what has been very significant for me over the past year, especially as these conversations have, uh, you know, come about and, you know, it, it's what I love about this is is the community that we're building, you know, that we're mm-hmm. building together with people like Humid C or Gusto uh, across the nation. Uh, a project that I'm particularly excited about is a project down here in Texas where um, we are, um, you know, trying to address the issue of health inequities and health disparities uh, in ms by building a consortium with um, yeah. different providers all across the state to conduct research together to educate mm. together to advocate together and that's, that's really awesome. it gets my passion going because i don't you know i mean teamwork you know it makes a dream work and it's 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 awesome it's what we need we need people united to to assess the problem, to talk about the problem and to do something about it. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, collaborations across the nation and especially down here in Texas.
1: I I agree. And I think that the beauty of understanding equity in MS is not only you're fulfilling a very important mission that is an unmet need, but also, if you look at that, you step back from that, it will be an opportunity to bring people from different backgrounds. Everyone has an expertise and something to offer, anywhere mm-hmm. from venture scientists and basic science researchers, translational research experts, clinicians, epidemiologists, nutritionists, physical therapists, right? Everyone has something to bring to the table. And and that allow us to create these coalitions, these networks that goes beyond your institution, beyond your network. So I think uh, not only we can fulfill a, an important and meant need, but most importantly, I think we can all benefit in the process and we can learn something. Personally, I'm invested in education. That's one of my passions. I'm, I'm always curious about how do we learn and, and what is the most effective way to to learn. And I do believe that the first step in empowering patients is educating them, giving them the tools so they can understand and they can take control of their life and they can choose their teams. And as you mentioned, Dr. Williams, they can say, well, I'm going to fire my neurologist. I don't like that neurologist, but they have an educated decision and that empowers them. So one of my passions is understanding how we learn and how different ethnic and racial backgrounds perhaps influence the process of learning through misconceptions, through biases, through you know negative perception of illness that perhaps that's rooted to our culture, and so that's one of the areas that I'm passionate about.
0: And tell us about um, uh, brain health. Tell us about are you doing some work with brain health as well? That's right.
1: Yes. Yeah, so my wife and I we are uh, we are working together, which is uh, another you know wonderful thing that is brought to the table—the ability to mm-hmm. work and learn from my wife. And we have funded a nonprofit, the Brain Health Center of the Rockies, and we are uh, you know, organizing a different offerings on brain health to patients with multiple sclerosis, now with NMOSD as well as MOGAD, um, mm-hmm. in ways that we can provide patients the information and the tools they need in order to only really understand how to achieve maximal brain health. But most importantly, what to do on a day-to-day basis to truly get there. Mm-hmm.
0: And so how do people find out more about the work that you guys are doing or any of the offerings that you have? Are they online or?
1: Yep. They can go to our website, which is www.brainhealthcr. So that's time for brainhealthcenteroftherockies.org. All right. All
0: right. Gotcha. Brain health CR. All right. And I'm excited about so much. Yeah. Um, Gosh, where to start? Um, so I'm excited about lots of things. I'm excited about um, the CHIMES trial, which we are going to start res- reporting results from, which is the first um, phase four clinical trial focused on Black and Hispanic Um, American uh, people, individuals living with multiple sclerosis. So very excited. It was a very, very long time getting that trial up and going. Um, And we finally closed the first year of data. So we're about to start reporting on that, um, which I'm really excited about the outcomes. We're going to be looking at things like ancestry, um, looking at many of the genetic markers. So data and points that are looked at in many of our other clinical trials, but we'll be able to have kind of a larger sample of Black and Hispanic and Latino um, individuals will have that information for them. So that's super exciting. Um, I'm excited about some of the collaborations. Um, I think if anything, COVID has really... uh, increase the uh, collaborative spirit, I think, within the scientific community. So I think many of us are reaching out to each other saying, hey, you know, you're doing this work, you're doing this work. Let's work together. Right. So the goal is to make life better for our patients. Right. Um, And so I'm really excited about working with you guys on some upcoming projects and, um, you know, I just think there's there's a lot of work to be done, but I think that people um, are really kind of digging their heels in and, you know, finding their space and trying to raise awareness um, and most importantly, empower our patients to live better and live well with MS. So um, lots of exciting work going on in the space. So um, thank you guys so much for your time this evening. Um, I don't think we have any uh, questions in the chat, but we do have some folks who are uh, very grateful for our candidates discussion um and I thank all of our audience for tuning in tonight and for those that will be watching um I've put um Dr. Miravale's uh uh, foundation in the chat so you guys can look up um, all the great information he has there and um I look forward to seeing everybody in two weeks uh for our next brain chat and also thank you to our sponsors Biogen Idec and um the National and Society. So thank you, Dr. Miravalle. Thank you, Dr. Freeman, uh, for your time tonight. And thank you to everyone who came to see Brinkton. Have a great evening, everybody. Thank you, Missy. Thank you. You're very welcome.